Welcome to System of Soul, the podcast for entrepreneurial business owners looking to create breakthroughs in their organization. I'm your host, Chris White, along with my co-host, Dan Jamilly. And uh, this morning, we've got a real exciting guest coming your way. He's been here before, talking about retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann from Special Forces. Scott is the uh, owner of Rooftop Leadership and The Hero's Journey. Uh, he is an author and a playwright. Scott, welcome to System and Soul. Hey, Chris. Hey, Bench. Thanks for having me on, man. Always. Scott, you've got, um, you've got a big event coming up. And, and, and the purpose of this, this episode is we really want to share with our listeners um, what you're doing, how you're helping entrepreneurs, how you're helping leaders um, across the country um, deal, with, uh, deal with all this churn. And that's your word. Um, that's going on in our world right now. And um, if you could take us back, <clears throat> so I know that I just said you're going to tell us about this big announcement, but I'm actually going to have you go back a little bit um, and give us some context of, of why you wrote Last Out, The Elegy of a Green Beret. I, I spent about 23 years in the Army and 18 of that as a Green Beret. And, you know, Green Berets are a little less known than the SEALs, although I think we're probably one of the older special operations forces out there. You know, everybody thinks of, of special ops. They think of the, the men and women that kick the doors. Um, you know, they're, they're usually the first in on a target. They take the target down and then they come off the target. And they usually do that, you know, unilaterally, like at, by themselves in and out really quick. Green Berets are, are quite different. They're kind of a modern-day Lawrence of Arabia in the sense that they, they, they go in and they work with indigenous people and they help them stand up on their own against oppression. And so it's a very different relationship-based approach, still very lethal mm. um, and very, very dangerous because you're working in low-trust areas, but it's just a different, it's a different approach. Uh, and I spent most of my adult life doing that, working with Green Berets in low trust areas like Afghanistan, Iraq, Colombia. And, you know, when I got out of the military after 23 years, I had a really crappy transition and, um, you know, almost took my own life as a result of it. I got really, really dark. And it was um, a couple of mentors who, who showed me the power of storytelling as a way to heal myself and to reconnect with my new planet uh, that was the civilian world. And so I just fell in love with that. I fell in love with storytelling. I fell in love with the power of storytelling. And it became really my medium for both rooftop leadership on the for-profit side and the hero's journey on the nonprofit side. And this play, I wrote a play about the war that I wanted Americans, I wanted to inform Americans on the cost of war because I felt like they had forgotten it. They were removed from it. And I wanted to validate the journey of the warriors and military families that had fought it because mm. I could tell they were feeling forgotten because I did. And frankly, after 20 years of combat, I don't think thank you for your service really gets in. So I wanted to put a different medium out there, Chris, that was um, that would would really help do that, would inform on the cost of war, but also validate the journey and all the movies and the books. They're all they either portray us as like these superhuman door kickers. Yeah. Or, you know, or or broken you know, and just needing the care of people for the rest of our life. And there are both of those in our military society, but that's that's not who we really are. And and I just wanted to do a different medium that didn't talk about the first in, but the last out, those men and women that go day after day, month right. after year, and that's what this story's about. 
How, how long did that take you to write that? It, it took a long time. You know, one of the things that I've learned as a Green Beret is that the, the, the strategic outcomes take time. You know, like the, I, I don't believe in anything less than a five or 10 year plan. I just don't. Right. Nothing in my life has ever happened that was strategic any sooner than that. Um, it took me um, two years to write it. It took another year to uh, learn how to act because I perform in it. It took another year uh, to cast it. Um, it took another year to perform it on tour. And then, you know, COVID shut us down for a year. And now, you know, we're releasing it as a film. So I don't know how many is that? Five or six years that this thing took. Um, and then it took, you know, it took 18 years to live it. <laughs> yeah, right. How much of the story is fictional versus nonfiction? I, I tell folks ev every story in that play is true. It happened. It didn't all happen to me. A lot of it did. But uh, every story in that play is based on a true story. And people are just blown away by that. And, and but, you know, I took really good notes when I was in the military. I journaled a lot. And, 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 um, and so what we've done is we created a, my character, Danny Patton. Is a, he's a fictional character. But he's based on three Green Beret team sergeants who didn't make it home. Um, and I rolled them all into one character. Mm -hmm. So I had plenty of content. <laughs> to draw from but yeah they're all based on even the smallest of things if you watch and a lot of people have watched the play like multiple times just to catch things there's like little things planted all in there like even a red bird in one scene where my wife is looking at a red bird there's a whole story behind the red bird in the military oh right on i want to um, pause on two things you've said so far <laughs> like we could just hang it up here but i mean the <laughs> fact that um that, that confidence statement that strategically nothing happens in less than five years. Man, we live in a culture that does not want to believe that. Right. And we take so many shortcuts to try to make that not true. And I've seen it be true in my own life. And I still try and create plans that are going to happen in, you know, 18 months. And how do we get it done sooner? So uh, that that's a bold statement a lot of people need to hear. Here's one other observation. You talk about being in environments of low trust. I, if I was telling your story, I would have said they're hostile. And so I immediately went into some of these session rooms with our senior leadership teams and some of them get hostile, but hostile is a different perspective than low trust. Can you, can you dive into that? Because I think the distinction there is really profound. Wow. Yeah, that's um, that's a really good catch, man. Um, you know, here's the thing. And I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll take an outside industry perspective, but I think it's there's a universal singular to it is. So, you know, when you go into a village in Afghanistan, I, I think that most elite forces, most combat forces, they go in there and they would use the word hostile because all of the indicators of what's around you seem hostile. Right. I mean, you're sitting across from people who don't like you. They don't approve of your culture. They don't approve of you being there. All of them are holding a weapon, tickling the trigger with their index finger. Um, you know, they're, they're, it, it has a feel of just danger, right? Yeah. And the, the, the easy thing to do is to go, okay, this is a hostile situation. I'm going to go in ready for this hostile situation. So you go in, you know, just as, just as amped up as they are. Yeah. Like you leave your body armor on, you don't take your body armor off, your posture. And we're, you know, humans, we give off signals way before we open our mouth, right? We read, we're social creatures. We read friend or foe 
in we 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 thin slice that in nanoseconds. And so everything you're giving off is don't mess with me. You know, and so what happens is humans mirror each other and you basically your emotional temperature goes into a sympathetic state. And now you're just both in the red. And as Ivan Terrell says in Human Givens, anger makes us stupid. So you don't have the ability in that moment to do anything strategic. The only thing you really have to do is to fight. And it's all fear-based and anger-based. So with special forces, we, we try to take a different approach. Is we try to look at it as, look, um, we need to understand before we ever, we got to meet them where they are, not where we want them to be. That's the first thing. We got to bring the emotional temperature down. We have to get them ready to listen because our goal is to work with these people, not to fight them. You know, our goal is to work with them. So how do we do that? And that that involves human engagement. And so it's how we think about the problem and thinking about it as a low trust situation. How do we restore trust and bring it to a level uh, where we see the pictures in their head related to pain and goals? And, and a lot of that storytelling, active listening. And unfortunately, sometimes you've got to gun up. But most of the time in all my career, I can't remember a single situation where I was ever chased out of a meeting room or had to defend myself. Many entrepreneurial business leaders are overwhelmed, burnt out, and frustrated. They know they need to delegate to an assistant, but they don't think they can afford one, and they don't want the responsibility of managing one. At Delegate Solutions, we provide leaders with a different approach to admin support without the hassles of committing to an employee. We support clients remotely in as little as one to two hours per day, all the way through to full time. We provide delegation coaching to help you figure out what and how to delegate strategically. Our team of thinkers and doers join forces to get things done, so you're free to focus on what you do best. Learn more about how we can help by visiting www.delegatesolutions.com. When you're, you know, so I, I'm envisioning, and we've talked about this before, and you've shared some things with me, but like when, 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 you know, you literally, you know, take your men and you parachute into this village, say there's 20,000 and, and you're there, right. To, 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 to bridge those trust gaps. How long would you're going in to create relationships, but do you have the timeline? It should be six months. It should be three months. Like how long does it using that skill set? How long does it take? That's a great question. Um, while I'm thinking about it too, Benge, to your, to your question, there's actually a scene in the play where what you're talking about actually happens. My character loses one of his best friends and, um, he immediately it flashes to a scene where he has to sit across from the elder who everybody knows was in on it, but he's got to work with this elder and he needs this elder to help fight the Taliban. And so it's a meeting between these two uh, Rams. Uh, and it is, it says everything that we're talking about. And, and he has to fight through the design. He even, even in the film, I'll give a little bit away. Danny even has his hand on his pistol when he walks up and, and the elder tells him to sit. He's trying to decide in that moment whether to smoke him uh, or to have a shura with him, and he ends up choosing the latter. But I think it, it's the physicality, and it's that you see that's like how he's having to fight through this urge. And I think that's what we're dealing with today, right? Like we're having to fight through that at every turn. That's what people, but people are surrendering to it. They're surrendering to the anger and and that piece. And the problem with that is anger makes us stupid. Um, but, um, to Chris, to your question, 
You know, the speed of trust is a weird thing. Um, I think we have this notion in our mind that that trust takes a long time. And, and in some ways, I agree with that. In some ways, I don't. I think it takes a long time if you're mostly worried about your agenda, <laughs> right? It takes, you know, um, if you are truly in a position and in a mindset to, to, to serve other people and to, and to create an environment where people can stand up on their own, for example, and you are going to be a supporting effort to that, tr you can accelerate trust. There's, there's mm -hmm. ways to accelerate trust. And, you know, what we always did was we understood that it's going to move at the pace of the population. So, you know, my, one of my favorite sayings is I have time when everybody else is running around. I just say literally slowly, I have time. Like I will not be rushed. You know, I'm going to, because I've just seen what happens when I rush and I've seen what happens when I focus on the other party. Mm. So, you know, but it's interesting when you approach it that way and you really just like come at it with discovery and curiosity and you, the other party senses that you're really trying to get a picture in their head of their yeah. goals and they know that it actually goes faster. That things actually move faster. You know, that, that old saying, sometimes you have to slow down to speed up. I think that's true. And the more that we can focus on the other party, the more that we can focus on their goals and what they need and what their pain is, the faster we can move and in influence. Scott, this is so off topic, but I've got to ask you about it because I have a feeling you're going to have an insight for me. As we look at this country that you fought and served for, the divide, it, we're being pushed to the sides so rapidly. And I don't see that going anywhere positive. It seems like one of these areas like you're talking about that's super low trust because we're only worried about our agenda, our platform, what, you know, what, what, and the fear of what we're going to actually lose by what we see on the other side's agenda. If you could wave a magic wand, how would, how would we fix this in America? How would we actually create a little bit of unity? That's a great question. I think about that a lot. And I talk about that a lot because I, I believe, first of all, that what's happening in our country right now, we are on the, we are on a, we are on a um, path of societal collapse and violence if we don't get a handle on this. I mean, and, and I never thought I would say that. I never, I mean, I've been talking about distrust in America for a while, but in the last year or two, I've seen indicators that show me that we're, we're actually in many ways uh, very similar to some of the low trust places I worked in. Like we've evolved socially in that direction. And one of the primary phrases I use to describe it right now is shadow tribalism. There's, there's, there's this shadow tribalism that's settling on our country right now, where in-groups and out-groups are competing for resources and status, more so than they are unified under a bridging vision, whether that's democracy or out of many come one, e pluribus unum, all of those have subsided. And now we have overt in-group, out-group behavior, where groups are literally fighting each other for um, status and resources, which is the most primal behavior on the planet. Like every mammal on the planet does it. And it is extremely destructive for a society. You're actually going backward. Um, and it's all fear-based, right? Because we fear and anger. That's what, that's what we, that's what we, we go into this trance-like state as humans when we get afraid. And, and our leaders, unfortunately, have, have, 
actually fomented this in so many ways. And by our leaders, I'll be more specific. I believe political leaders, I believe uh, media for sure. Um, and even to some degrees, um, institutions in corporate America have, have, have surrendered to this notion that we should be bridging and connecting. Instead, they've, they've, they're fomenting division, you know, like what I call divisionism. Uh, in order to meet their agenda, a very limited agenda. And, and the two things they use that, or the two things we should all look out for as Americans is contempt and moral superiority. Those are two things that people say, well, I'm not involved in that. It's those people over there. If they would just X, Y, Z. And, the, and I just look at them and I smile and I'm like, you, you are right there in it. You are right there in it. If you are, you know, if you're, if you are showing contempt for someone, that you would normally reserve for an enemy, right? Or if you're speaking in a whisper with moral superiority of another human being, you are part of that shadow tribalism. You have been sucked into a churn that is very destructive. And the problem with it, Binge, is we've got to stop giving our agency away to amateur leaders. You know, we're, we're assigned, for example, we're, you know, we're assigning meaning to politics. In the modern world, to assign meaning to politics or worse to a politician is an amateurish move, right? Because you're giving all your power away to an individual who is not going to make your life better. In fact, their, their agenda is something radically different than what you're giving them the power to do. And, and you're surrendering your own agency in your life. You know, what I tell people in my tribe is when's the last time a politician walked in and really made your life better? Right. When did they actually make your life where you could look around, and you go, you know what? I'm better for this. Like my family's better. And, you know, uh, I just I think that that's the big thing is we've got to stop giving our agency, our power away to politicians and other leaders who are practicing divisionism, regardless of their party, regardless of, you know, whether they're a conservative or a liberal mask or no mask. If they are dividing Americans as a way to advance their agenda, I'm not. I'm not going to stand with them. Our government, our our, our politicians, our our corporate leaders—these are all people leading, right? Well, who the hell's coming for to help us then? That's my thing. Nobody's coming, man. I, I think that's kind of our rally cry at rooftop is. Nobody's coming. I mean, like if we're waiting right now for some leader to come riding over the hill, you know, on the white horse or dark horse or whatever you want to call it to rescue us, they're not coming. You know, they're just not. There's not that that's not going to happen, you know, and that's part of the problem is we're giving our own agency away. And we're we're investing our power in, in leaders who have no interest in any kind of bridging trust or social capital or individualism rightly understood or a sense of community, you don't see that. When's the last time you know you you heard a politician or someone talk about really actually you know either deep seated principles or values of this country or 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 connecting beyond one's in group? Like you just don't hear it. Um, and I think that's the first step we have to do, Ben, is we have to recognize that leadership actually, and I saw this as a Green Beret day in and day out, you can have really strategic effects as a leader if you just recognize that you're the one of the ones that has to step into the arena and do it. And you gotta you gotta start locally, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta embody what it looks like and build your own tribe, build your own community. And and then it's surprising how many other people you look around are on that rooftop with you doing the same thing.
So I, I, I can get sucked into the shadow tribalism because I so maybe not so much giving away my agency, but the shadow tribalism, I can get sucked into that because I, I am, I feel like I'm so principled when, when there's things out there that don't make sense to me, I just get like fired up. Right. Um, how do, what's my first step? I can, I confess that because I, I know that there's a lot of other people that feel the same way. Right. Especially when you're talking to a bunch of business leaders who have invested so much and, and you get these little twinges of what feel like socialism and, and, um, we're going to move, you know, the government creates the, the value in the communities and, you know, we're going to keep taxing the people that actually produce that value to a higher and higher degrees. Like people react to that. Right. And I'm susceptible to that. What is my, what should be my go-to mechanism when I start to feel that rise up in me? Okay. Yeah. Let's unpack it. I mean, let's, because I think that's a fair question, right? And, hey, look, and- I just have a podcast to get free therapy. So Go for it. <laughs> same, me too. And I feel the same way. And and what I try to tell people is, so when I hear, and I see the visceral reaction sometimes people have to, to that. And and I, look, Green Berets, you know, we, we have to go into these places where, again, we're working with people or trying to work with people who at times have attacked us, who have killed our friends, you know, who have practiced, you know, actions against us right? Or at the very least can't stand the ground we walk on and would happily turn the other way, you know, if a, if a, if a hole was being dug in the road in front of us and they saw it. So, so let me just be clear on that. And the other thing I want to, so when, if people are like, oh, it's this kumbaya shit, let me just be clear. Green Berets post 9-11 lost more killed in action doing this work than all other special operation forces combined, Right. So like I'm not if if I thought smoking somebody in the face or straight up coercion was the way to advance a greater society or a greater outcome, I'd be honest about it. And I'd say. Right. But but I but I've just I've seen unleashed straight up full on coercion where if you want to draw down on a dude, go for it, go for it. And, and, and I've done it, you know, and so. There's a difference, Benj, I believe, between principled stance or what I call red lines and anger as a default. And this is what we had to work through all the time and help each other with in special forces was because the, you know, the tendency is because we're emotional creatures. We're meaning-seeking, emotional, social creatures. And so we navigate the world. Emotion is how we take action, right? We don't logically think about something. We feel something first, and then we use logic to justify doing it or not doing it. But we've already decided emotionally. That's how we navigate the world. And fear is a primary emotion and anger is a secondary emotion. And the problem is, is if you stay in fear long enough, and fear could be, you could look at an advance of socialism and you could, that's fear because it invokes a form of scarcity, uh, it invokes uh, aspects of status and, and, and societal psychological safety, right? The amygdala fires. And if you stay in fear long enough, it always gives way to the secondary emotion of anger. And then when we go to anger, that's when our aperture, you know, the body, emotions are nothing more than the body demanding an action. It's a physiological need, right? So it's a, it's a demand for an action. And fear is to fight or to run or to flee. And, and anger is to fight. 
So when you go to that secondary emotion of anger, your, your body doesn't know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger in the bushes or these particular people from this group who are threatening my way of life, right? The, the amygdala doesn't know the difference. So it responds with a full-on physiological response of anger. And, and your aperture for perspective goes to like the size of a soda straw, right? And you've heard that saying, see red, our, we, our sympathetic nervous system takes over. And so our ability to really do any kind of connection or strategic outcome is gone. And we've given away our agency. And now all we really have is the ability to fight. Sometimes that's necessary. But, but what I'm saying is it's become the default to where now every time somebody says something we disagree with, we unfriend them or we speak with contempt, as Sebastian Younger says, normally reserved for one's enemies. So when we start speaking with contempt for our fellow citizens or moral superiority, we are much closer to violence than we've ever been. And when we go to that, that is, uh, that is, that is a very, very sad outcome because um, it's very hard to pull it back. Yeah, yeah. So back to the question, what, what should be our, what's our healthy response when we start feeling the red rising? Yeah, sorry to get on to that piece, but a lot of times I find it helpful if we know what happens to our body. And yeah, no, I love uh, it. I love it. Sure. I just want to know how to fix it. <laughs> the first thing is we get away from the trigger, right? I, I, I can't believe the number of people who are like, man, I cannot believe what I saw on Fox News this morning. Well, turn that shit off. <laughs> turn it off. It's not helping you. 24-hour news cycle. I've been on 24 I was on 24-hour news cycle for almost three years as a terrorism analyst. I've seen all of it. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, I see what happens behind the camera. It's, it's a trap, just like social media. If you're getting triggered, turn it off. Just turn it off because it's not helping you, right? It's triggering your amygdala that there's danger, right? And it's sending you into a sympathetic state. So stop, anything that triggers you, stop it. Like that's the first thing I say, get away from the trigger. And you can on most of it. Um, the second thing is when you find yourself getting triggered is you want to get back down to a parasympathetic unless you're in danger right or unless you're really going to hit someone with an axe handle like get yourself to a parasympathetic state as fast as you can right and and so get away from the trigger the next the three things i say that get you into a, a parasympathetic state really fast and i would have to do this like in high emotion engagements and stuff first thing feel your feet on the floor F notice your feet on the floor right then do three lower body breaths, lower belly breaths, where you expand your belly. And you can do this through your nose. Expand your belly on the inhale and then just kind of squeeze belly to spine on the exhale. Like that. Right? And you do three of those, three to five, and you'll start to come down. And then the, the third thing is just find three new things in the room. Find three new things and look at three new things in the room. It could be on the other party. It could be a picture on the wall. But find three new things in the room. And just repeat that until you are present. What does the three new things do? It takes your, because see humans, our cognitive control, our focus is, 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 is about one step above a primate. Um, and so when we get angry or afraid, we go into a trance-like state that is necessary for us to do what we're going to have to do next, which is 
you know, advance on somebody or say things we would normally not say. So we go inside ourselves into this survival mode. You probably know this when you get angry, you like everything else kind of like disappears. And you're like in this trance like state where you do things that you normally wouldn't do when you're calm. Right. So focusing on three new things will bring you back. It will bring you out of that trance like state and back into, you know, being in the room, holding space and able to actually have agency on what your next move is. Maybe your next move is to do something or to say something, you know, but guess what? You're much better suited to do that. If you can bring yourself out of that trance like state of just reactionary anger, uh, you'll be much more thoughtful about what you say and maybe even say something that you won't regret. I'm reminded of uh, one of the very first things I heard my coach say that I will never forget. And he almost said it in passing, like under his breath, but he, he said, when people speak, it's either goal achieving or anxiety relieving. And if we can have that perspective um, when people are speaking, then, then we can get underneath the intention of what's coming out of their mouth. And are they just relieving their own anxiety about something or are they trying to achieve something here from a, a healthy aspect? And then we can do it for ourselves too, because we're subject to it as well, right? Is, is what's about to come out of my mouth, is that me relieving my anxiety or am I trying to, to, is there a goal there that I'm trying to achieve in a healthy aspect? And I've, I've always loved that paradigm. And what you're doing is having us take that moment to figure that out. And, and the other thing too is, is, is in that moment is to try to meet the other party where they are and not where you want them to be. And that's a yeah. very difficult thing to do. It's, it sounds great, but when you're emotional or you're angry or you don't like what you've heard, then it's, it's really, really like, screw that, man. I'm not doing that. But the, the reality is if, if the leaders that particularly now who are able to do that are, are actually going to have the best chance of influence. And here's why. Because just like when me sitting across from that tribal elder, this, in that moment, does that person want to take me out? Yeah, he does. But do I even know that, you know, two months ago, uh, a B-1 bomber dropped a, a bomb on his compound and killed his nephew? <gasps> what? Yeah, yeah, that happened all the time. And, and, and all of a sudden, it's like, whoa, <laughs> well, that wasn't on my watch. That was on, no, man, that's not how no. it goes. And, and, and the reality is, most people in our country today have run a lot of miles. They've been scuffed up. They've got their own journey. And until we have a sense of at least what their pain is and what their goals are, why would we even assume any level of moral superiority over them or that we've got it figured out, right? And I'm again, I'm not saying we don't have principles and red lines. We do. But how can we even begin to have a conversation around that if we don't have a sense of the pictures in their head? And if we'll do that, the good, there's a good chance they're not trained. They're going to show up emotional and you can actually bring their emotional temperature down through. And that's what we found ourselves having to do all the time as Green Berets was I've got to own that room. I have to own that room. Nobody else is trained like me. No one else is going to do this. Nobody's coming. Right. So I've got to assess the emotional temperature in the room. I've got to get clarity on the pictures of in their head. I've got to ask thoughtful, open-ended questions and shut my mouth and ask follow on questions. Tell me more about that. And I want to, and in doing so human nature, I will bring the emotional temperature out of that room down. And at some point they're going to be ready to listen to what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, we were supposed to talk about storytelling. <laughs> we and we went, we, this is, though. It, it is. Um, but 
there's so much here, you know, that the relationships that we can learn from business, sport, and war are so rich, right? And so that's, you know, we're talking about these low trust situations and all I'm picturing is the boardroom, you know, when there's these heated conflicts and, and, you know, what is it to go back to something you said, it's, it's fear and anger resulting from status and resource, you know, and, and then when that escalates into contempt and moral superiority, we're, we're too far. So I think there's so much application here. I would love to, uh, if you'd be up to it, you could be our first three-peat guest, but come back and really dive into the storytelling part because I think that's so relevant for leaders in today's age. Uh, but before we get out of here today, I, you know, you've been such a, a great friend, mentor, leader uh, to Chris and I. We love sharing you with the world, and we want to help share this story that you've produced. So can you tell us what's happening with the story and how we can engage with you in it? No, I appreciate it, man. Um, I, I, what I'll do is I'll, I'll I'll say one thing and then I'll pivot right into that question. But I, I want to make sure that I give the listener one more nugget on storytelling that I think that will give them a tool because I really want to make sure we complete on that. But I believe that in this day and age, in this low trust time that we live in, and whether this is with your clients, with, with your associates or your teenagers, it's not the stories that we tell, it's the stories that we ask to hear. There's a lot of data right now coming out that the only way to really change someone's mind is through narrative. And the irony is it's not the narrative that you share. It's the narrative that they share, right? Mm -hmm. If everybody took a little more time to just ask thoughtful, open-ended questions that let the other party tell their story and just listen, it doesn't cost you a damn thing. Doesn't cost you your principles. Doesn't, it doesn't do any of that. Right. And so I just throw that out there, give it a try. Give it a try in a fairly benign environment. Try it with your kid. Try it with your spouse. Ask a thoughtful, open-ended question that lets the, the other party just tell you their story. About, you know, and it could be just something like, you know, um, I'll give you one. My teenage son, Braden, doesn't want to talk to me. Like, you know, he thinks he knows everything. He's a great kid, but he doesn't want dad, like, you know, hitting him up at the dinner table. So you know what I do? I, I ask this question. Hey, who pissed you off the most today? Tell me about it. And he's like, let me tell you. And, he's like, <laughs> and, 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 and all I got to do is listen, man. And, and pretty soon, like, he's like, yeah, you want to go shoot ball? I'm like, yeah, let's go. You know, and, and, and it's not, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it is sorely needed right now. And if you just yeah. try it and see, um, you know, storytelling is about listening more than telling stories. Yeah. Uh, pivoting into last out, uh, you know, we took this play on tour for a year and we did 16 cities. It's, it's an all veteran cast. Um, it's and military family members. It's a story about modern war told by people who lived it. And uh, it's straight up storytelling, man. That's what people really get excited about. Like there's no uh, gee whiz props. We have a wall of honor behind us, which is like a multi-shelf thing with trinkets on it and then actors blocks. And that's it. We co-create the story with the audience and it's old, you know, we play multiple characters. Um, but the plot line basically is my character, Danny Patton is a green beret and he is killed in the first scene fighting the longest war in American history killed in the first scene. And he wants to ascend to the warrior resting place of Valhalla, but he's holding on to something and he can't let go. So he's stuck 
in, in between his living room and his firebase. That's purgatory for him. And his best friend, Kenny, comes down from Valhalla, who was killed on 9-11 in the Pentagon. And he brings a couple of what he calls operators with him to, and these are shapeshifters. And uh, their, their mission is to assume all of the people in Danny's life who made his heart pump the most blood and to try to help him figure out what it is that he's holding on to so that he can let go and no peace. And so they take Danny all the way through his life from the time he joins special forces, meets his wife, Lynn, has their son, Caden, um, um, 9-11, um, and, then, and then all of the deployments over and over, back over, back home, back over, back home. And by the end of the, the movie, you literally don't know where you are. You don't know if you're in Danny's living room or you don't know if you're on the Afghan battlefield. And that's what it feels like to so many of us, you know, um, not only then, but now. And, and so the whole play, you go for the ride, man, like you strap in and you are on a, you are on a 100 minute white knuckle ride with Danny and his family. And you not only see through Danny's eyes, but you see through his wife, Lynn's eyes, you see through his son, Caden's eyes and their voice is never told, never heard. The military families never heard from. So we did that. We did that in cities all over America, 16 cities. We did, uh, we traveled with our own counselors. We did like 200 PTS interventions. Um, we, we honored gold star families and then COVID shut it all down. So we said, all right, enough. We're going to, we're going to put it out on film. So we did, we self-funded for it. Uh, we got some pre-funding, wonderful people like Chris White volunteered to be community hosts. Um, and now we're, we're, it's coming out as a film on Memorial Day. Uh, it, it's going to be a limited release, um, but uh, it's, to, it's a love letter to our Gold Star families and our fallen at Memorial Day to let them know we haven't forgotten about them. Um, it's going to help remind Americans of the cost of war, and it's going to remind our veterans and our families that we hadn't forgotten about them. So it's coming out. Um, we, we were looking for people to volunteer to be community hosts. Uh, we're asking them to each host would raise $5,000, spread the word about the play and host a virtual watch party on Memorial day. That's it. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be quite, quite an event. We're really excited about it. People are already getting fired up about it. Nice. Where do we go to sign up? I, I know that there's some, the, uh, people in our tribe that are going to join you on this. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of places that you can go. Um, if you go to lastoutfilm.com. Um, you can, you can, or lastoutplay.com. There's a button right there. It just says become a host <laughs> and it's so simple. And like Chris will tell you, it's a, it's already a growing community of hosts. Um, we, we do zoom calls with the cast and we talk about production and you get to see all the behind the scenes stuff. It's really, it's really a lot of fun. And we're kind of breaking all the rules of filmmaking and, and we're just doing it our way. Like we did with the play. Yeah. We went 28,000 miles in a U-Haul with the play two combat veterans from Iraq drove our equipment van. And, uh, and the other thing I'll just say this is a lot of people, when they think about the film, they're like, Oh, isn't that cute? A little after school special from the veterans, you know, and, and people don't realize like we bring it, man. We trained for years as actors on this and, um, and we've lived it. So it's not an after school special. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to go for the ride with us. It, it, you feel it in your chest cavity. Is, is, is there a rating to the film? Scott? Yeah, it's got uh, it's it's definitely like probably uh, what is it the seventeen one? <laughs> it's like uh, NC seventeen. 
language is rough. We talk like soldiers, right? So I didn't pull any of that out. That it's mostly language. There is some content. And a lot of veterans are like, wow, man, well, am I going to get triggered? I don't know. I mean, I got triggered performing it at times, but but yeah. triggering simply means that you are you are bumping up against a memory that needs processing. A lot of what you go through in the film is is healthy. We have counselors on call. Um, but um, the experience, and we've had thousands of veterans see it and military family yeah. members, they loved it. They, I mean, they went for the ride and they was like, yep, that was my life up there. Uh, and so the experience has been very, very profound. Scott, thanks for being with us. We're going to get you back and dive deeper into storytelling uh, between now and then. Everybody go to lastoutplay.com and let's join this. I think this is powerful for our own self and maybe even for the healing of our country. So. Scott, thank you. Hey, Bench, thanks for having me on, man.